Great to see you. Do me a favor, get your Bible out. Turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, there's probably one in a chair in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, take that one with you. Okay, we would love to for you to have a copy of the Word of God, uh, especially if you read it on a regular basis, it will transform you for sure. Uh, in fact, we're actually talking about the power of the Word of God this morning, so I hope that it encourages you, and I hope that if you don't have that Bible, you'll take it with you, okay? Uh, so we're finishing up Nehemiah this week and next week. We were going to do Nehemiah 7 this week, Nehemiah 8 next week, uh, but what we decided to do as pastors is combine 7, 8, and 9 this week, and then next week 10 to the end of the book, okay? So if you're a small group leader and that... You, sometimes you get our sermon calendar in advance, and you're all stressed about it. Don't be stressed, okay? It'll be easy. So uh, so that's what we're doing today, and particularly today, I'm going to preach out of chapter 8. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Nehemiah chapter uh, 8, and uh, we're coming down the home stretch of the series. So last week, Pastor David was here, did a great job. I got to preach over at, uh, at Coastal Chesapeake, and uh, man, I tell you, I just, I really, really wish that I could bottle for you here at Yorktown all the other campuses and the excitement of what God is doing at each individual campus, and just so you could see it and thank the Lord together. So so thank you guys for being a part of what God is doing through Coastal and uh, and sharing and all that. So it's been great. Uh, so, but Pastor David did a great job. And so last week, the story, right, we finished the wall, and, uh, and so seven, eight, seven, eight, nine, uh, seven, the people gather. There's a big genealogy read, and, and they kind of celebrate all of the people that were a part of uh, of building the wall and coming back to Jerusalem. And then in chapter 8, they actually open the word of the Lord and read it in, a, in a, I guess, a corporate worship setting, and you see the response of the people. And that's what we're going to unpack this morning. And then in chapter 9, we see the obedience to this, what's called the Feast of the Booths, B-O-O-T-H, okay? So the Feast of the Booths, last time, last time someone came up to me and said, I thought you were talking about the Feast of the Booze, okay? No, not that, all right? So uh, it's uh, camping, essentially, right? Right, so we will. We'll, uh, I'll make a point out of that this morning that I hope will encourage you. And so that's kind of the overview. But today I want to focus on the power of the Word of God in our lives. I read a story this week of a, a pastor who uh, had a um, gentleman make an appointment with him. Comes into his office and the guy is really dressed up. You know, he's got the power suit on, the power tie. Uh, he could tell that he was well resourced. He could tell that he uh, was uh, a leader in the community. And the guy sits. This gentleman sits down in front of the pastor. And he goes, "Hey, I, I want you, if you would, uh, just give me some bullet points of Christianity. Like, what is this thing in Christianity? And could you just kind of nutshell it for me? A couple bullet points." And and the pastor was inquisitive and he said, "Why do you?" want some bullet points of Christianity. And uh, he said, well, my wife has recently been attending your church, and she's become a Christian, and at the dinner table, she's talking about Christianity, and I have no idea what she's talking about. And so if you could just give me a couple bullet points so that I could understand so that I could uh, engage in conversation with her. Now, the pastor knew that he could give some bullet points, but he decided not to. And he looked at this man and he said, I, I tell you what, I I'm not going to give you any bullet points to Christianity. And he took a step back and he had an inquisitive look on his face and said, well, why not? And he said, well, here's the problem. He said, if you really understood the bullet points of Christianity, it would really change your life significantly. 
I mean, if you understood the bullet points of Christianity and, and that you really let them sink into your soul with understanding, it's going to mess up everything that you are. It's going to mess with your success. It's going to mess with your calendar. It's going to mess with your money. It's even going to change the way you think about family. Really, it's going to change the way you think about everything in your life. And he said, I don't think you really want to do that. And so with that, he escorted the man out of his office and let him contemplate why he wouldn't give him bullet points to Christianity. But here's the deal. You ready? Every single one of you came here this morning. You're not here by accident. The Lord has you here. And when you start hearing, really hearing the Word of God Really, really listening to the Word of God. You, you don't read it. it. It reads you. It's going to mess with everything. It's going to change how you use your time, talent, and treasure. It's going to change your priorities. It's going to change the way you think. And that's what we see happen here in Nehemiah, where the law of God is broken out. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 2. So we see a, a new character entered into the story. And if you remember all the way back at the beginning of the first chapter, I talked about how Ezra and Nehemiah really were written as one book. And, and Ezra's kind of working alongside Nehemiah. Nehemiah is, is doing kind of the practical, physical stuff of rebuilding the wall. But Ezra's doing the spiritual stuff behind the scenes. And in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 2, we see this. It says, so Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly. So they're all assembled. They're celebrating the new wall that's been built. And, and this assembly has both men and women and all who could understand. This is the idea of children were there that could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. So the number one, the point number one this morning is, the Word of God transforms His children, and we're going to see that transformation as we unpack this. Here, here in this meeting with Ezra, there's men, there's women, there's young, there's old. I would encourage you parents, you young parents, and you're here this morning, so I'm sure it's a habit, but maybe it's not a habit, and you just happen to wander in this morning, but I would encourage us as parents to, to regularly make sure that our children are hearing the Word of God your children really should know more about God's Word than they do your football team. I'm now preaching myself. I'm now meddling in my own life, right? At the foundation of the people of God, um, as God was building a nation through Moses, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses gives the law of God, and then he says this in Deuteronomy chapter 6. He says, in these words, the law of the Lord that I command you today shall be on your heart and you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them on as a sign on your hands and they shall be on the frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Moses said the word of God should be permeating your family life and letting the Word of God do its work. And by the way, this isn't mindless superstition. If you know anything about the nation of Israel, they took this verse in Deuteronomy 6 and they made jewelry called phylacteries. Anybody ever heard of phylacteries? And they, they actually did this literally. They had like leather bands with little lockets on them and they would shove little parchments of Scripture in the lockets and they would bind them on their forehead. they bind them on their, on their wrists. The Bible's not talking about mindless superstition. 
with the Word of God. We, we're not a, we don't worship the Bible. We worship the God of the Bible. You got that? It, it, there's not, and so I love that he talks about the, everybody with understanding. Listen, we come to corporate worship. I say this every week, right, uh, after the offering. Like, man, we're about to open God's Word and you can sit here and yawn your way through it, or you can be ready to hear the word of the Lord. And say, God, what do you got for me? Give me what you got. And so they hear the word of the Lord with understanding. And when you hear the word of the Lord with understanding, point number two, there's transformation, and it transforms you into worship and submission to the word of the Lord. Nehemiah 8, verse 3, and he read from it facing the square before the water gate. By the way, if you ever think my sermons are long, check this out. From early morning until midday. Anybody? Let's go. In the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand, and the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. What are we talking about here? We're talking about like Leviticus. He read for eight hours the book of Leviticus. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for that purpose, and beside him stood Matiatha and Shema and Ananiah and Uriah and Hilkiah and Messiah, and on his right hand was Padiah and Mishael and Malchajiah and Hashem and Hashbadaniah and Zechariah and Meshalom. And I have no idea if I read those right, but if you read them with confidence, everyone just agrees. And they were on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was... Above all the people, and as he opened, the people stood, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen. And lifting up their hands, they bowed their heads, and they worshiped the Lord with their faces on the ground. Have you ever been in a corporate worship service, and you're kind of sitting there going, standing there going, why am I standing right now? Have you ever had that happen? Maybe I should maybe my posture should be on my knees with my face before the Lord. You're like, we need to move these rows further apart if I'm gonna do that, right? But a couple of things here. Like, first of all, letter A, it's what I just hinted at, right? In point one, but point two, like under letter A, attentive listening. They came attentively listening to the word of the Lord. Speak to me, God. They don't come with the attitude of Man, I sure hope the preacher has his A game, because that was a snoozer. What's he do all week anyway? Can't he prepare something a little better than that? This is not um, this is not hearing a sermon and going, man, that was great. I, I sure wish my husband was here for this, or my wife was here for they. It's not listening to a sermon. This would have been great for someone else. This is our heart posture being, God, you have something for me. You have me hearing this sermon today. You have me hearing the word of the Lord. And you want to apply it to me and being ready to do that and to bend to follow the word of the Lord. By the way, on a side note, 
Um, I love this passage because it talks a little bit about a pulpit, right? That they built something for Ezra, and he was above the people. It wasn't like above them in person, but just the position of the Word of God. Have you ever been? One of the big differences between, this is a rabbit trail, free, free information, okay? So a little rabbit trail. One of the big differences between a Catholic worship service and a Protestant worship service is what happens at the central part of the service, and it has really important theological meaning. At the central of a Catholic service is what we would call the Lord's Supper, but they call it what? The Mass, right? They receive the Mass. But at the sense of one of the part of the Protestant Reformation, and really comes from passages like this, is the exaltation of the preaching of the Word of God as the central part of the service. If you've ever, have you ever been to like an old Protestant Baptist, Lutheran, Methodist building. I'm talking like 300, three to 400 years old. And you go into an old, old building, and the pulpit is like a set of stairs, and the and the pulpit's way up. Have you ever seen one of those? They got to be really, really old. But it, it's the idea of the exaltation. The Protestant Reformation was like we're exalting the preaching of the Word of God as the center part of our corporate gatherings. You guys with me on that? And so here they are, right? They they hear the word of the Lord by, by uh, Ezra. He reads the law, and in letter B, they submit themselves to the word of God. And how do I know that? They use the word amen, right? Anybody know what the word amen means? Because we say it a lot, like in this weird Baptocostal way, okay? Amen means I agree. I'm in agreement with what's being said or what's being read or what's being talked about. And there's times where if you're sitting here at Coastal, I'll say something really hard culturally. It smacks hard against the culture, and someone will yell out, amen. Why do we do that? Because we want to remind our hearts and minds that we don't submit to culture. We submit to the Word of God. Even There we go, right? If I say something really hard, I'll get more amens. But Chapter 9, if I was to take you over to chapter 9, you read that later on your own, it des- and describing the sins of na- the nation of Israel's past, it uses the term several times, stiff-necked, all right? You were a stiff-necked people. The idea is the, the nation of Israel got the word of the Lord, but they didn't submit to the word of the Lord. They stiffened their neck. They were, they were a Romans 1 kind of people. Romans 1 is probably one of my favorite sermons. I preach out of Romans 1 probably every two years because I want to remind us. Romans 1 tells us that our problem, all of our problems in life ultimately come down to a worship problem. We are worshipers. It's not a matter of if you worship. It's a matter of what you worship, and you become like the God that you worship. And if you worship an idol, you become hardened and self-focused, and you become a God unto yourself. That's stiff-necked. But we worship a God who's merciful and kind and gracious and good, and so we should, as we worship this God, we should be coming like the God that we worship. But in order to do that, we have to bend a knee to the Word of God and submit to the Word of God. And as Ezra preaches and he reads the law, and the people say amen, and there's like weeping, and, and man, they're, they're thrilled to hear the Word of God. They bow and they submit to the Word of God. And an overflow of hearing this word of God is submission. And let her see, it's the word worship, right? They, they worship the Lord. They bow their faces to the ground and they worship God. And by the way, I'm really, 
really careful, at least I try to be, with the word worship here at Coastal Church, right? I call this time corporate worship. And why is it corporate worship? Because we're commanded by the Lord to gather weekly and hear the word of the Lord. And we do that together and we sing together because we're commanded to sing together. Listen, I was singing on the way up here uh, to my playlist and driving up here and I'm singing out loud. And it's just not as fun as singing with you guys, right? And, and as we sing these truths that it stirs in our hearts the freedoms of the gospel and it reminds us not to be so temporally minded and to be eternally minded in the goodness of God in Christ and on and on and on as we sing like there's a freedom in that and so we so this is corporate worship and i use the language around singing that we're worshiping God through singing, because we too often call the music time worship, right? No, it's worshiping the Lord through singing, but the Bible teaches us that whenever we bend and submit to the the Word of God in everyday life, it's worship. So husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. It's an act of worship. And wives, submit to your husbands, not because he's good or perfect, but because it's unto the Lord. It's an act of worship to the Lord. And by the way, go to work tomorrow and put in a good day's work and make some money and earn a living for your family and have a little bit left over to share with those who are in need. First Timothy, it's worship. Every moment of every day as you raise your kids in the Lord, Deuteronomy 6, and teach them the word of God day in and day out, going to bed and rising up. It's worship. Every moment of every day is an opportunity to worship the Lord. Amen? And so it's all worship, and this is corporate worship. And they heard the word of the Lord, and they worshiped the Lord. And when the people of God heard and submitted to God and His word, number three, this word of God brought unity and clarity. It brought unity and clarity. Look at verse 8 of Nehemiah 8. And they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense. Now, this is a really important word, by the way. They gave the sense so that the people understood the reading, all right? In other words, what's happening here is they're reading the Word, and Ezra and the priests are explaining to the people. They help the people understand what it means. I've been, I've been pastoring a long, long time, and uh, I've heard every reason under the sun why people come and go from a church, right? And uh, one of the reasons is, I've heard, is, man, I'm going to this church or coming to this church, whatever, because they really preach the Word of God. I never know entirely what that means, okay? Um, Because here's the deal. Like, if we really wanted to preach the Word of God, we would just read Ephesians. Like, hey, the sermon today is Ephesians, and I take 30 minutes, and we'd read Ephesians. Like, that's really preaching the Word of God. But preaching is about taking it and explaining it in such a way that we can all go, oh, I understand, and I apply it to my life. You see, we don't just read the text, but there's a preaching, an exhortation element to what we're doing, and it comes from the Bible. We explain it in such a way that we can understand it and then walk in the Word of God in humble submission and worship unto the Lord. And when this happens, there's, there's unity and there's clarity around the Word of God and a group of people serving the Lord together, okay? And so I know Pastor David last week did a great job, talked a little bit about unity. Uh, let me give you a couple things that unify us at Coastal Church. So you, if, you're not, if you go through our membership class, you would know these things, but let me give it to all of us, okay? First of all, we have what I call doctrinal unity. We have eight essentials that we don't bend off of. 
These are things that they're tier one for us. We can talk about tier two, but these are our tier one. We don't, we're all unified. We're unified in our purpose. We are here to develop authentic followers of Jesus Christ. So under the umbrella of our doctrine, we want to point people to Christ. He is the object of what we're doing. We want you to be a follower of him, and we want you to follow him in an authentic manner. We're unified in purpose, and we're unified in process. How do we do that? How do we develop people as authentic followers of Jesus Christ, right? And so four things that we're saying, these are really the focus of our, our resourcing at Coastal. Once you develop as a follower of Jesus, authentic follower of Jesus Christ through connect, which means corporate worship, where we hear the Lord, we pray together, we sing together, and we give together. We grow in a small group so that we have community around us. As we grow larger, we grow smaller. You have people in your life that are walking with you as you authentically develop as a follower of Jesus Christ. You serve in a ministry and a mission so that the gospel can go out and you can bless the church with your time, with your talents and your time, all right? And then we worship the Lord by multiplying. You take someone with you through the connect, grow, and serve portion of what we do. And so that is our, we're unified in our process of how we do it, and we're unified in our membership. Our members have agreed we are unified in what we believe. We are unified in how in our purpose. We are unified in our process. We're unified in our leadership structure. And we're unified in how we can ask questions to the leadership structure. And so in unity, by the power of God, for the glory of God, we desire to exalt the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everybody with me? And all of those things I just defined for you come from the word of God and unpacking them and go, how do we do these things together as a church. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, man, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgments. Listen, the enemies of God's gospel would love to disunify the church so that the church turns inward and focuses resources on fighting inwardly instead of working together to push the gospel forward for the glory of God. Everything that I just defined for you is found in God's word by being understood clearly and unifying us at this church in the purposes for which Christ has left us here so that we can exalt Jesus and people be transformed for all eternity through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we're after. Amen? Okay, you ready? I just got a text this week from one of our staff members. It looks like in November, across six campuses, that we're going to be doing over 57 baptisms. Amen, right? Now, what? Now listen, I really, really believe this. this there's a lot of reasons that's happening, but one of the reasons is we're unified as a church. This is what we're after. I had a I had a well-meaning, I was playing golf Friday, I had a well-meaning person say, hey, pro golfer, and they were like, runs a golf course, like, why don't you bring the men out here, organize a big golf event, and come on out here, and I thought about it for a minute, not, and we could do that, but I said, that's not where I want to focus our energies. There's all kinds of good things we could do, but th I want to do it this way. I want to make sure we're all connect, grow, serve, multiply. That's where I want to focus the energies, so the gospel goes forward, and I don't want to get distracted by all things we good things we could be doing. Let's focus on the best things that we can be doing. You guys with me? So we're unified, all right? Now, these next three points are really an outline of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. So when the Word of God is preached regularly and clearly, number four, point number three, there's a recognition and a conviction of sin. 
when the Bible is regularly preached, there's a recognition and a conviction of sin. Nehemiah 8:9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and the scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. What's happening here, and if I were to take you over to chapter 9, you would see kind of this pattern that it keeps happening, is this healthy conviction of sin that comes when we hear the Word of God. Now, I want you to think about this. This is how powerful the Word of God is. They're reading out of Leviticus. When's the last time you read Leviticus? Anybody, anybody read Leviticus this year? Be honest. One couple. Great. A couple. Yes. Leviticus, right? So you, like you now know what to do when mold shows up in your wall, right? And so they're, they're reading about what to do when mold shows up, and they start weeping over it. Like, wow, this is God, you know, keeping us healthy. That's great. He loves us that much, right? And, but when you hear the Word of God, there's a healthy conviction of sin, and the reason there's a healthy conviction of sin is because The Word of God is His character and His promises, and since it comes from His character and it's who He is, it is good for us. Yes? Doing things God's way is good for us. Doing things our own way is bad for us. The Bible says the wages of sin is what? So if you're doing it your own way in opposition to the Word of the Lord, you're on the path to death. We don't want you on the path to death. We want you on the path to life. And so the Word of God is preaching. There's a healthy conviction to sin. But by the way, we don't just stay in conviction of sin. There's a forward movement. 2 Timothy 3, 16, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, all Scripture, man, this is really, really powerful. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable Profitable for teaching, so head knowledge, so we have understanding, for reproof and for correction. This is changing us and for training us in righteousness to have us walk in the righteousness of the Lord. The Scriptures convict us of sin for sure, but Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7 that godly sorrow leads to something. Godly sorrow leads to repentance We're not to just be convicted of sin and stay there. Yes? We're not just to be, yes, we should be convicted of sin. There should be weeping and mourning over our sin. I believe all that to be true. But if you stay there, you end up in a prison of shame. And shame is a form of pride that says that I am not worthy of the new name that I have been given in Christ. Shame is saying the person and work of Jesus Christ is good enough to cover their sins, but not my sin. Shame is a self-penalization of not understanding the gospel. And so we're convicted, we grieve, but then according to, in 2 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul says, we, we, godly grief leads to repentance. The word repent is literally a 180 degree turn. I was doing this way. I realized it was wrong. I'm convicted of the, by the word of God of my sin. And now I'm going to turn. I'm going to repent and I'm going to do it differently. 
If you just stay here, you have not appropriately applied the Scriptures and the Gospel. And so Ezra and the priest remind, number five, of God's mercy and freedom to celebrate what God has done. Verse 10, and then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat. Amen to that. Amen to that. And drink sweet wine. They weren't Baptist. And send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to your Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is our watcher. How many of y'all have that as a plaque on the wall? Right? Probably a lot of you. For the joy of the Lord is our strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that had been declared to them. Verse 10, the joy of the Lord is your strength. In its context is the idea that our sin is forgiven and we've been declared righteous because of the work of God alone in Jesus Christ. This past week, I was training our um, some of our young leaders, and we have a class for them, and we were talking about the active and the passive obedience of Jesus Christ. And now, a lot of us spend a lot of time talking about the passive obedience of Jesus Christ. Those are theological terms, all right? And the passive obedience of Christ is that He suffered and died on the cross for your sin. That was the payment for your sin. But the active obedience of Christ is that he actually kept the law of God perfectly. He actively kept all the rules of God's holiness. Therefore, Jesus is the only person that walked the planet that didn't deserve to die. He never had the wage of sin. He actively kept the law of God, and therefore, he alone is the one who deserves the reward of a person who actively keeps the law of God. Why is this important? It's the doctrine of justification. When you turn from you, you say, I'm a sinner, and what I deserve is God's wrath. But instead, I'm going to believe in God's rescue plan. And God's rescue plan is that he sent his son for me. Jesus, who took on flesh, he actively kept the law of God. He lived a perfect life. He died a substitutionary death on the cross where God poured out his hatred and wrath for sin on Jesus instead of on me. He laid his dead body in a grave, and he overcame my last enemy, death, by stepping out of his own grave. And when I repent and believe and receive the gospel of Jesus into my heart, the active obedience of Christ, his law keeping gets credited to my spiritual bank account by grace alone through faith alone so that the only person that ever walked the planet that deserved the reward of God, Romans tells me, I get to share in his reward by grace alone. Isn't that amazing? And so the gospel is preached to the people of Nehemiah and Ezra. The people understand, and he says, listen, the joy of the Lord. What is the joy of the Lord? It's the grace and mercy of God given to us in Christ. That is your strength. So if you're going through a hard time, guess what? It's hard today, but I have a future that I'm sharing in the active obedience of Jesus Christ. Isn't that great news? The joy of the Lord is my strength. We know the sweet mercy of God. We walk in the freedom of Jesus Christ who has now declared us to be his kids. And so when we get up to corporate worship, 
Listen, I know the 930, and the 11 has it even worse, especially when I preach long. It's hard to get in on here on time, but get here on time. Don't get up and go, well, they sing four songs. I could probably miss the first two. Man, if I really time it right, I'll miss the offering. You know, like, no, get up and go, man, my brothers and sisters in Christ are gathering, and I know the check-in line at the kids' ministry is long, so I'm going to get there on time because I certainly wouldn't show up late to a movie. So I'm going to get up because we're going to sing and celebrate the gospel of Jesus Christ and the mercy and grace that God has given me because the joy of the Lord is my strength. And we're going to declare that together corporately. And then, finally, number six this morning, once you know the Word of God and you celebrate the freedom of the gospel, there's one response, and that's to live in obedience to the Word of God. So living in obedience to the Word of God is not earning God's righteousness. It's been earned for us by Christ, but it's growing to be more like the God that we worship. It's growing to be more like Jesus. And so this is a really fascinating story, okay? Here's what happens. Ezra reads the story about this thing called the Feast of the Booths. Now, the Feast of the Booths is, is basically when the nation of Israel was taken out, God delivered them from Egypt, t- took them through the wilderness and gave them the promised land. The nation of Israel, for eight days out of the year, once a year, they're supposed to carve out eight days and go, essentially go camping and go out in the wilderness, set up tents called booths with like palm tree branches and stuff. They were to camp out for eight days. And it was supposed to do a couple things for them. Number one, it was supposed to remind them that God provided for them as they crossed the wilderness. See, see, that God provided for their salvation. Okay, we have similar things like baptism and the Lord's Supper and corporate worship. It reminds us of those things. Okay, and they were to like leave the comfort of their home and remind themselves that there were people that sacrificed for them to have the good land that they now had, right? Which for me, the biblical application is very, very simple. Camping is a sacrifice, and no one should want to go camping, okay? That's the, that's the biblical application for me. Um, and so they were supposed to do this. They only did it through the time of Joshua. And then generations went without ever celebrating the Feast of the Booths. So check this out, Nehemiah 8. On the second day, the heads of the fathers, the houses of all people, with the priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra, the scribe, in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booze during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it to all their towns in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills, bring in branches of olives, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees, and make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought and made them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof, in their courts, in the courts of the house of God, in the square of the water gate, in the squares of the gate of Ephraim. They all went camping, right? Verse 17. And all the assemblies of those who had returned from captivity made booths, lived in the booths, for from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to the day of the people of Israel, they had not done so, and there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rules. You know what I love about this passage? They heard about the feast of the booze. They hadn't been done in thousands of years. Their parents didn't do it. And they said, this is what God commands. We're not going to make any excuses. Let's celebrate the feast of the booze. Isn't that cool? Immediate obedience. 
Now, there's some of you here this morning that there is the, the word of the Lord is preached on a week-in, week-out basis, and the finger of God through the Holy Spirit is touching something in your life and saying, you are not walking in obedience here, and you're making excuses. God made sex. It was his idea. He made it fun. It was his idea. And he made it for the confines of marriage between one man and one woman and the confines of marriage. Anything outside of that is sexual sin. And you know what I'm sick of hearing? I'm sick of myself and the stance that I take being labeled as the traditional view of marriage because that makes it sound like I believe some kind of old wives' tale. I believe in the biblical view of marriage. It's a totally different authority. It's not the authority of history that maybe sometimes we got it wrong in the past. It's in the authority of the Word of God. Amen? I believe in the biblical view of marriage as God designed it. Sexual purity is not your grandparents' generation and it doesn't apply to you. It is God's design for this thing. So that you are not on the path of death, the wage of sin is death, but you are on the path of life because God wants you to celebrate the way He designed it. I want you to hear the Word of God, and I want you to apply it and walk in obedience, forgiveness. Who are you holding a grudge against? God says, listen, turn them over to me. I'll take care of Justice belongs to me. The Bible says it several times. Vengeance is what? Mine. I'll take care of that. So just turn them up, forgive them. Turn them over to me. I'll take care of vengeance. Submission to earthly authority. When God commands that. It's not like, well, that, that belongs to someone else. Because when you know the freedom of the gospel, the Bible doesn't teach you're now free to do what you want. You're free to obey the word of the Lord. Paul says in Galatians 5, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. What's the yoke of slavery? Doing it the way you wanted to do it. What is freedom? Walking in the words of God. And Christ has now set us free in the gospel to now walk according to the word of God. I'm out of time here, so I'll just ask you guys this. How many of y'all remember watching um, Steve Irwin's memorial service. How many of y'all remember watching Steve Irwin's memorial service? Nobody? A couple of you, a couple of you, okay. Some of you are like, who's Steve Irwin? Okay. How many of y'all remember watching the Crocodile Hunters memorial service? Yeah, Steve Irwin. Man, he was a part of our lives. Man, when my kids were little, he we, he was on every night right around bedtime, you know, and, and uh, and man, when he died tragically and suddenly, like it affected our family, you know. And so we watched the memorial service, and um, and they they played an interview of him on Larry King. Okay, now this is going to show how old I am. How many of y'all know who Larry King is? Okay, so yeah, half of you good. I'm glad. So Larry King was interviewing him, and they asked him a really important question. He said, "Steve, what do you want to be remembered for?" That's a really important question. You guys should probably take that one around the small group this week. What do you want to be remembered for? And he said this in this clip they played. He goes, I want to be remembered for a passion and an enthusiasm for animals. Now, if you ever watch The Crocodile Hunter, like, you know, like, he would hold up 
the ugliest animal I've ever seen, you know, and he'd be like, like, look at this, she's a beaut, isn't she gorgeous, you know, and on and on he'd go, and, and he was passionate about animals, and, uh, and I started thinking after I watched that clip, like, man, what do, what do I want to be remembered for? What do I want Coastal Church to be remembered for? And I hope that we want to be remembered for a people that held up God's Word and we looked at it we said, man, are we doing what God has called us to do? Are we developing authentic followers of Jesus because that's what the Bible tells us to do? And we're doing it through connect, grow, serve, and multiply because that's what the Bible tells us to do. And am I parenting according to the Scriptures? And my marriage reflect what God has called me to do? And so I want to ask you a question this morning. What is your Feast of the Booths? What is it in your life that the Holy Spirit keeps putting his finger on and says, I don't have this one yet? And you keep holding on as if that idol or that hurt or that sin is going to give you life. And I want it so that you can walk in freedom. What I have for you is better than what you're holding on to. What is it that God's saying, I need you to trust me on this and obey on this because it's good for you? You want to hear something crazy? generations, for generations, the nation of Israel did not celebrate the Feast of the Booths. And you want to hear something crazy? Ezra and Nehemiah's reforms, for the most part, failed. The kingdom of God didn't enter in. And why is that? Well, because we know that religion doesn't change a heart. Real heart change can only come from the inside out. But the one thing that came from the reforms of Ezra and Nehemiah's ministry is that the nation of Israel, after thousands of years of ignoring the word of God, restarted the celebrating of the Feast of the Booths. And then 400 years later, the God-man, Jesus Christ, stood up at the Feast of the Booths in John chapter 7 and said, I am the water of life. If you want to be changed from the inside out, follow me. Now, why did he choose the Feast of the Booths to do that? There's no accidents with God. When you walk in obedience to the Word of God, you never know what God is going to use in your act of obedience to exalt the kingdom of God in the hearts of men and women around you. It might even be 400 years later that he's going to use your act of obedience to touch somebody generations from now. Isn't that cool? Remember how I started this? Remember, remember week one, I talked about leavening and compounding interest, that, man, when we stack one day of obedience upon another, that God can do far greater things than we can ever think or imagine. Maybe God wants you this week, he's tapping on things, saying the feast of the booze, you need to trust me on this, you need to turn from it, you need to walk in obedience to the word of the Lord, and I am going to bless you, but it might come four or five generations from now as you change your family pattern to what has been, to what could be. Because there's no accidents of God. And so maybe the change today is, man, I, I just need to be a Christian. I came here today. I've been investigating Christ. I've been kicking the tires on Christianity. I've done it long enough. Today I need to turn from my sin, trust God that Jesus is indeed his rescue plan for my soul. And maybe you're a Christian. And there's an area that there's been disobedience and the Holy Spirit's tapping on you and going, do it today. Trust me today. Turn from your sins. But here's the deal. Ready? Christian or non-Christian, the message is the same. 
It's repent of your sins, believe in Jesus, and trust the promises of God. Walk in obedience to the glory of God. What is your feast of the booths? Amen, church? Amen. All right. Worship, uh, prayer team, come on up. Worship team, come on up. Let me close with prayer. Let's submit our lives to the word of the Lord. Man, God, I can't, I almost can't imagine a worse condemnation than, man, you're a stiff-necked person. You're a stiff-necked people. Oh, God. May the word of God remind us of our sin and the freedom that you've gifted us so graciously in Christ. May we remember our credited righteousness, God, that we're going to share in the inheritance of Jesus by grace through faith forever and ever and ever. And then, not by, because we're trying to earn, but because we want to be more like the God that we worship, may we walk in obedience, God. And as your word is preached, and there's a feast of the booth moment where there's something that's been ignored for my life for years, months, days, generations, You know what, I'm not ignoring this anymore. I'm going to walk in obedience, trusting, oh God, that you're doing something bigger and greater and better than I can even imagine. That we may be set free to walk in the freedom of the Word of God. May we be a people that are submissive to your Word, and out of that submission is worship to you, O Lord, because you are a great God, you're a great King, you're a great Savior. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name I pray.